parable of the prodigal son. Starting in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need, so that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son asked, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the, the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat which, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the Lord bless you of his word. Please stand with us. That he was eating with all these tax collectors and sinners, and they say, why does this man receive and eat with tax collectors and sinners? And again, if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus told them two stories last week about the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the extent to which Jesus, the Savior, goes looking for his people. And when he finds them, there's a celebration because they're lost. There's nothing desirable or good about them that wants to be found, but Jesus goes looking anyway and finds them and brings them home, and there is a celebration. And now Jesus tells a third parable to answer this question. And it's quite possibly the most popular and well-known parable that Jesus tells in all of his ministry in teaching. There have been entire books written just about this parable. Uh, some of the great masters of art have painted hundreds and hundreds of paintings just depicting this parable. In fact, I had a seminary class 
that pretty much only focused on an interpretation of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is a, a very important and uh, weighty parable. But with this parable, Jesus is once again going to ask each of us, I think, to look at what kind of person we are. This parable shows us two different approaches to God, and the question for you is going to be which approach in this story represents you. The parable starts with this father who has two sons in verse 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, we shouldn't just gloss over this reality because it is very significant. We don't really think about our relationships in terms of estates and inheritances, but that was very significant in first century Israel. Birth order was very important. Family names and reputations were important. Identities of children were very much wrapped up in the identities of their parents. This is why people were so often identified as, for example, Simon, son of Jonah. Your identity as Simon was intricately connected to the fact that you were the son of Jonah. So when this son says to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, it is no small thing. That inheritance that is coming to him is his father's estate, everything he owns that would be left to his children at the time of his death. Which is important because by asking for his inheritance before his father is dead, the son is essentially telling the father, I don't really care about you. I just want your stuff. You could be dead for all I care. Culturally speaking, that's basically what the son is saying. He says, Dad, I wish you were dead and I could just have everything that you own. But the father defers, and he gives his discontent son what he asks for, which would have been about a third of his estate. As the younger son, he would have been entitled to a third of the estate. His older brother would have been entitled to two-thirds. And what happens when young people have lots of money and opportunity and time? (laughs) Nothing good. Look at verse 13. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So pretty much exactly what you would expect to happen to a young man with a lot of money and all kinds of opportunity is exactly what happens, right? He blows the whole thing, and pretty soon he's got nothing to live on. He needs a job. So verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So this son has squandered all the money to the point that he has to hire himself out for the lowest of jobs, caring for pigs. And again, that's culturally significant because pigs were considered unclean animals according to Jewish law. And so not only is it low work, but it's religiously defiling work. Because according to the law, if he's going to work with pigs, now he's not allowed to touch anyone else. Or else they would also become unclean. He can't go to worship or even be in the presence of anyone else without a long purification process. That's how desperate he is and how low he has sunk. This part of the story would have been shocking and detestable to the people listening to it. Probably gagging at the thought of working with pigs and even eating the same food they were eating. Sure, that doesn't... I mean, I don't think that's a very pleasant thought to any of us, 
But to Jewish culture in the first century, that would have just been utterly detestable. And then, though, the story takes a turn in verse 17. Just look at those first few words there. But when he came to himself. Now stop there, because those words are hugely important. What does it mean that this younger son came to himself? It means that he has had some revelation or some epiphany. Now, if you talk to alcoholics and addicts, a lot of them will tell you that in order to get better, you first have to hit the bottom. You have to realize just how addicted you are and the toll that your addiction has taken on your life. You have to want to get better, and you have to realize that you have a problem and that you are powerless over it and that you need help. I think that's the kind of revelation that this younger son has when it says that he came to himself. First, he realizes where he is, physically speaking. Look again at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You see, that's where his own wisdom had brought him, to the pig pen, not even eating as well as the pigs. And he says, man, even my father's hired servants have more than enough food, and here I am coveting pig food. Talk about hitting bottom. But also when he comes to himself, he realizes that he has sinned. Look at verse 18. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So not only is he at rock bottom physically, but also spiritually. He has realized that it was his sin that brought him to this low point. He has sinned against God by rejecting the authority that God had put over him. And he has sinned against God by failing to honor his father. And he has sinned against his father by telling him that he wished he was dead, by demanding his earthly inheritance. And when he comes to himself, he also realizes that there is nothing he can do to repair the damage that he has caused, either between himself and God or between himself and his father. So he comes up with a plan. He's going to go to his father and say this in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Because even being a slave under his father would be better than where his own wisdom had brought him. The question is, though, would his father take him back, even as a slave. I mean, after all, the last time they spoke, he told his dad that he wished he was dead. Would his father even be willing to take him back as a slave? But he decides to throw himself on the mercy of his father. Either he will take him back and forgive him and treat him as as one of his hired servants, or he won't. So go to verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now there are a few things going on here. First, it says that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him a long way off. Now that tells us that this father hadn't just gone about his business after the son left. He didn't say, well, you're dead to me then and go away then. See, I'll never see you again. No, instead he was watching and waiting for that slight possibility that maybe his son would come back. So that on the day the son did come back, he saw him coming, it says, a long way off. 
I'm sure that son probably expected to come on his hands and knees, groveling before his father, begging for the mercy of being one of his servants. But instead, he was met by his father, who went running out to meet him, embracing him, and more than eager to take him back. Also, it says that when the father saw him that long way off, he ran out to meet him. He didn't get on a horse or a donkey, or he didn't just take a nice leisurely stroll out to meet him halfway. He ran out to meet him. And that's significant because, again, first century culture, in first century culture, Jewish men didn't run. Believe it or not, they actually thought that, it, thought that it was undignified for a noble Jewish man to run. So Jewish men, you'd never find a noble Jewish man running anywhere. But what does his father do? He says, forget about my dignity. And he runs out to meet this son. And also, consider the condition the son must have been in, right? I mean, he was, he was caring for the pigs, He was probably filthy. No doubt he was still ritually unclean. And so by touching him, this father would also have become unclean. But he doesn't care. It's worth it to have his son back. Verse 21, the son said to him what he had rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember, that was his plan, to conscript himself as a slave to his father, because even his father's slaves were doing better than he was when he was in that pig pen. By his reckoning, he would be fortunate to be his father's slave. But there was no guarantee that his father would take him back even as a slave, so here he is putting himself at his father's mercy. And now verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Remember, that son thought he'd be lucky to be accepted back as a slave, but that's not what happens. Instead, the father restores him to his prior status. Full sonship. Full membership in the family. Now, the Father here, of course, is a picture of God. And it shows us, how does God receive sinners? Just as this Father receives his lost Son. The Father ditched his dignity and ran out to meet his Son. And so does the Lord. He ditches his dignity. He leaves heaven and takes the form of a servant. And he runs out to meet lost people who are coming home. He humbles himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, And to secure the restoration of his children, he rises from the dead and he defeats death so that they can be welcomed home, not as a servant, but as a full member of his family. So that that which was once dead is now alive. And you might think that that's where the story ends, right? I mean, we've seen the tension in the story, the resolution, and if it ended right there, it would be a happy ending. But it doesn't end there, and not everybody's happy. If you look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, 
these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Remember, Jesus tells this story as an answer to the question of the Pharisees as to why he receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus has told three parables now that all have essentially the same answer, and that answer is this. I came to save sinners. Sinners are the only people who will be saved. So, are you a sinner? And the reason that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners is because they are the lost children who have finally come home. It's like a lost child being found. It's like a dead person coming back to life. Why wouldn't he eat with them and receive them? But you see this other son here in this parable, this older son, he represents a Pharisee. He's the kind of person who's always followed the rules. That's why the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus eating with sinners. They saw that and they thought, why would he eat with them? They're dirty sinners. Why doesn't he eat with us? We always follow the rules. So how come they get the party and we don't? The most tragic thing about the Pharisees and about this older brother is their blindness. They thought they were morally perfect, but in reality they were just as sinful as anyone. So although they thought they were pure, they had served God and never disobeyed his commands. They were just as sinful as that younger brother in the story. They didn't realize that they were just as dead and lost as everyone else. Now go back for just a minute to, to verse 17, because this is where it all connects, and it kind of we see how it all wraps together. Verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, you remember that? That revelation that the younger son had when he realized that he had sinned, and that realization led him to pursue the mercy of his father and to receive it in abundance. He knew he was a sinner. He knew he needed to be reconciled with his father. But then what about that older brother? It never tells us that he came to himself, that he recognized or realized his own sin and shortcomings that he recognized his need for his father's mercy. It never tells us that because he never came to himself. And that's the same thing that's going on with the Pharisees here. You have a bunch of people who have never come to themselves, never realized how much they need a Savior. You see, there are two ways of approaching God. Humbly confessing your sin, like the younger son, and like the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus ate with, or you can come proudly, extolling your own righteousness like the older brother did. I always obeyed the rules like the Pharisees did. We always obey God's rules. There's two ways. You can come one of those two ways. But folks, only one of those two ways will get you into the party. And the arms of God are most widely open when we come confessing sin, not declaring how great we are. What you saw this morning... And the six people who were baptized was prodigal sons returning to their father, asking for his mercy, and their father giving it to them in abundance. 
Not that baptism itself did anything for them, but rather that it is a symbol that they are redeemed prodigals, prodigal sons and daughters who have come home confessing their sin and throwing themselves on the Father's mercy and love and grace. And in so doing, they find that he is more than eager to eat with them, more than eager to give them the best robe, to put a ring on their finger and shoes on their feet and throw a party for them because he has created them in his own image. He has purchased them with his blood. These people who were baptized have come to God confessing their sin and they've found that loving father who has run out to meet them with his arms wide open. You see, perfect people don't need a savior. They don't need redemption. Only sinners do. If you're here this morning and you're a sinner, you've come to the right place because there is a loving father who is running out to meet you, who wants to give you the best robe and the best ring and put shoes on your feet and throw a party. But if you're here this morning and you're morally perfect, number one, you're deceiving yourself. You're not morally perfect. And number two, you won't have anything to do with God and his salvation. God doesn't save perfect people because perfect people don't need to be saved. So are you really as good as you think you are? I want to encourage you this morning to follow that younger son's example and come to yourself. Use what I've said this morning to give you kind of a reality check and to confess your sin and come to your loving father. Go back home to meet him. You will find him there if you come confessing your sin with his arms wide, running out to meet you from wherever you're coming from. Jesus made that way possible. He's the one who laid the path for you to come back to your father through his death and through his resurrection. Again, there is no reunion if our Savior is still dead and in the ground. But he is not. He is alive. It's one of the most historically reliable events in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is more historical evidence for this event than virtually anything else in history. We can know that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, we can always come home to the Father. So I invite you this morning, as we think about the Lord's resurrection, to come home, come home to the Father. But as you come, confess your sin. Come to yourself like that younger son. Acknowledge your sinfulness. Confess it to the Lord, and you will meet him with his arms wide. Humble yourself and come today. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you are that loving Father. That loving Father who longs for a reunion with his children. That loving Father who overflows with mercy and grace and forgiveness for those who would come. That loving Father who longs to throw a celebration, to give his children the best robe and to put a ring on their finger and shoes on their feet and to kill the fattened calf and throw a party and play music and dance. Lord, that is what you want because you are a good father. Lord, you have made the way. You have given us all the invitation to come to that party by trusting in Jesus and what he did. The, the life that he lived, the death that he died, the power that he exhibited by rising from the grave and defeating death. Lord, this is your invitation to us. What a marvelous invitation. 
God, I ask that you would soften hearts today to your word. Soften hearts to be receptive to this invitation and to respond to it with repentance and faith. Lord, that your spirit would move among those who need you so that they would come to themselves and that they would see that they have sinned against their father. And Lord, that you would impel them to move forward on that road back home to meet you. God, I ask for your blessing this morning, that your spirit would move and that you would work this miracle in the hearts of people whom you have called. Lord, we thank you for the testimony that we saw today of that very thing, of six people who came back home to their loving father, whose arms are open wide. Lord, we thank you for the miracle of your deliverance. God, bless us now as we go on from here today to be with our family and friends and to think more about all that you have done and how you overcame the grave. Bless us to that end. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.